0: please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Jeffrey Davis. Jeffrey researches and works with innovators, professionals, writers, scientists, and social psychologists who offer him leading insights into the creative process, He's the founder of the Tracking Wonder Consultancy. And with Sounds True, Jeffrey Davis has written a new book. It's called Tracking Wonder, reclaiming a life of meaning and possibility in a world obsessed with productivity. Before speaking with Jeffrey, I sort of thought I knew what wonder was, but I think I only knew one dimension, Jeffrey shares with us six facets of wonder and most importantly, how we can increase our wonder quotient, bring more wonder into our lives and our world, become more wonder filled. Here's, I'm going to say it, my wonderful conversation with Jeffrey Davis. Jeffrey, the topic of wonder has become the focus of quite a bit of your teaching work, your writing, you're the founder of the Tracking Wonder Consultancy. As a way for our listeners to get to know you a little bit, how did the topic of wonder become so central to how you teach, what you write about, what you focus on? Mm,
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, There's maybe an inspiration point and a series of inflection points. Um, The inspiration point came while uh, being in South India, um, studying with my teacher of yoga, TKV Desikachar. I was researching for another project that was exploring the creative process and yoga philosophy and practices. And I was curious about this experience that I only had the word for like the delight and surprise we sometimes feel when we're in the creative process. He led me to a book, a little known book among some called the Shiva Sutras. It's really all about the sort of innate creative force within us. There was a reference to uh, to, uh, Vishmayo, Sanskrit for wonder or a fascinating wonder, a joy-filled amazement that we experience when we're aware of, let's say, ultimate reality in this ordinary waking world. And the commentaries just sort of lit a whole-bodied yes through me. And I realized that's what I wanted to devote much of the next several years to my studies and my pursuits. So That was the moment of inspiration. I realize, in retrospect, when I look back at so many critical points from my twenties and even earlier, I was like, Oh, that's always what I was being attracted to were these experiences of wonder. But it was a few years later when the real inflection points came because before that for a few years, i was um, you know I was pursuing all different um areas of wonder and Wisdom traditions, very little science of wonder at the time, but I was scrambling to find any science of wonder at the time. But it was a few years later, after a series of hardships that my wife and I both endured, we were newly married. Um, She had two miscarriages. In the same spring, I contracted Lyme disease, which is a tick-borne disease that can really devastate you neurologically and physiologically. I thought I got through it okay after the first round of antibiotics. It turned out I really didn't. And within just a couple of weeks after that, lightning struck our dream house farmhouse here in the Hudson Valley that we had just just purchased, literally sent a, a, a fire roaring through my study and, and uh, studio, kind of devastated our sense that, oh, we're going to Build our dreams where maybe we'll have a couple of wonderlings wandering around someday. The next day I came back um, to the house, which we would not be in for the next 15 plus months while I got renovated, gutted and, and renovated. Came back to my studio to sort of size up some of the books I could salvage out of the 300 that were um, ultimately destroyed. And I was noticing I was really shutting down. I was closing down. I wanted to cry, but I couldn't quite find the tears. I was sort of feeling rage, but not sure what I was angry about. And out of the corner of my eyes, I saw this sort of pulsing, this monarch that had flown through one of the holes that the firefighters had knocked in the wall. And for just a moment, all of the armor within me sort of dissolved, all the closeness dissolved. And I felt open again, before this beautiful monarch that had flown in, I felt open again that, okay, I'm not a big sign seeker, but I took it for what it was worth. It was like, okay, we're gonna be okay for the next however long this ordeal lasts. That was enough to give me enough hope and sense of openness to make it through those challenges. Now, here's where the series of inflection points really take shape for this project to answer your question. Because then I thought, oh, this is the real practice of tracking wonder. It's not just when everything's going really great for you (laughs) and and you're just playing along good days. The real practice of tracking wonder is what happens in moments of adversity and consistent challenge and change. So I got really curious about my own practices, my own living laboratory. I get really curious about testing out other ideas with our clients and our community. So that was our living laboratory. And I started gathering more of the emerging science of wonder to explore this question. How do fulfilled innovators, how do people who really describe themselves as fulfilled and who are making significant contributions in different fields, ultimately thrive amidst constant challenge and change. That's what got me on to this current project that we're discussing today.
0: Mm -hmm. So for a listener who says the emerging science of wonder, I didn't know there was a science of wonder. Uh, What is that?
1: Yeah. So when I started this, um, I was uh, looking into three areas of research, Um, human flourishing, Mindfulness and innovation. So human flourishing. So Marty Seligman uh, and another psychologist had really foremostly developed what we now call positive psychology. There's a very different orientation to psychology than the previous hundred plus years to look at how certain positive emotions might ultimately help us flourish. At the time, there was relatively little science on wonder, in part because it's so subtle. It is so subtle physiologically and even neurologically that psychologists were studying love, compassion. Dr. Keltner, whom we both know, was on the trail of awe. He and I had early conversations back in 2006 about his studies of awe, but little on wonder. So some of the science of awe and wonder overlap, but what some of the science of wonder is demonstrating is quite remarkable. So let me just define wonder, maybe for our listeners. That would be great, okay. yeah, especially because <laughs> you
0: said you said it's subtle physiologically, yeah. and that brought up for me. How do I even know for sure in any given moment that this is wonder? So a definition, but also a kind of litmus test in my own experience. This is this is wonder, Tammy. Now you know what it is for sure. <laughs>
1: That's such a great question, and I hope this conversation actually illuminates more of just what I want want this book to give, which is a shared language of possibility, a shared language of the emotions of possibility, which are what I call the facets of wonder. So wonder I define for entry point level here is a heightened state of awareness brought on by something unexpected that delights us, disorients us, or both. A heightened state of awareness, like instant mindfulness brought on by something unexpected that delights us, disorients us, or both. So, something, somebody you know, you think you know very well, says something to you that's kind of surprising and makes your head sort of tilt. And maybe it delights you. Maybe it helps you see that person in a new way. Maybe it kind of challenges your notions of who that person is. That's a potential experience of wonder in the facet of connection. Or a turkey shows up on the streets of Boulder. That's another potential moment of wonder as well because it's delightful, potentially disorienting, right? What's remarkable physiologically and out of some studies out of Arizona University is that these moments of surprise can pause the fight or flight response. So we know that positive emotions such as love will attract us, we're attracted toward the stimulus. Emotions like fear repel us. Experiences of wonder can hold us in pause, can pause us in the state of receptivity and maybe even possible appreciation. So I'll pause there for a moment. Just okay, to let you what digest comes, that.
0: What yeah, what comes up for me is I'll just share something from my own life for a moment, which is often I notice, especially if I'm working a lot and I'm not really taking enough time for my inner life, that the world can become kind of flat to me like one more morning, one undoing the dishwasher, one more time, you know doing this other you know very rote and that there is something that I, I, I want to find out if I'm using the word wonder correctly or not. There is this wondrous, I, would, I might use the word sacred or something, dimension that's always present all the time in all of these things that I'm doing that feel kind of covered over with a gray film because I can't see it or find it, but underneath it's wondrous. Is that the right use of the word wonder?
1: It's the perfect use of the word wonder for so many reasons, even the way you just laid it out. One is we are, there's nothing to, um, I would say, pathologize about the fact that we often do go through the world in just the terms that you described. We're in part kind of wired neurologically to sort of slot the world into different categories so we can survive and not have to figure out everything like, oh, dishpan, oh, That's a faucet, right? There's not this constant relearning every day. On the other hand, just exactly what you're describing, taking moments to pause and even be aware of one's surroundings, and then it does feel as if a veil is lifted. Those are potential moments of wonder. So I describe wonder as having this sort of effect on us and experiences of wonder, that sometimes they will disrupt or dissolve our biased perceptions, right? We have just these natural filters. And for a moment, for a fleeting moment, these experiences of wonder can disrupt or dissolve those biased perceptions of ourselves, of one another, of our surroundings, of what we consider the world. And we see again what is real and true, what is beautiful and possible sometimes just for a moment as you're washing the dishes, suddenly you look around and you just recognize the ordinary beauty and the water flowing and the beauty of just taking care of the dishes and and perhaps you just had a meal uh, with your partner and you're just honoring that whole sacred moment. And for a moment, that is wondrous. And that is potentially expansive if you heed it.
0: So is it fair to say that any moment, including this moment, the moment that the listener is in right now could be a moment of connecting with wonder. It's possible. Any moment.
1: I just got the goosebumps. So I'm going to say yes. Goosebumps are actually uh, sometimes the physiological response uh, to having a moment of wonder. And I think the reason I got goosebumps is because you really identified something that is really beautiful about moments of wonder is that they often happen in the space between us. There's a beautiful relational and social dimension to wonder that they don't only happen watching the great sunsets, right? Which is what we may think. And certainly they do happen there, but they can happen right here in the most beautiful ordinary moments, even in conversation, maybe even Mm -hmm. particularly in real conversation. Mm
0: -hmm. Now there's a lot I want to, talk to you about, Jeffrey, you've created a whole, I would call it cartography of, of tracking wonder. That's really interesting. And I want to get into it. But first, I just want to know, now that you've been immersed in studying wonder, tracking wonder, talking to other people about wonder, has your life really become wonder filled? How are you different now than you were, you know, 15 years ago before this became such a focus for you?
1: Thank you for that question. Uh, because I've reflected quite a bit on it, particularly the past two or three years, to recognize there are certain days when I'm like, wow, the wonder ratio is really up. And of course, you know, it was um, the now late Mihai uh, Csikszentmihalyi, right? The one, the psychologist whose work for the listeners who don't know gave us the language of flow. He said something um, in his follow up study on creativity. That has always stayed with me. You are what you pay attention to. You are what you pay attention to. And so to your question, the more I've paid attention to wonder, the more I've discussed wonder, the more refined have been my sensibilities to recognizing the numerous moments of wonder that arise in my life. So, yes, my wonder ratio really has amplified by virtue of that.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, your book uses the title Tracking Wonder. Tell us a little bit about this metaphor of tracking, tracking animal paw prints, but also (laughs) scatology and all the other things we might track.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. So actually, uh, Hillary, my wife, I have to credit in part for that title um, because she had uh, actual experience in studying with some of the foremost uh, animal trackers. Uh, tracking animals not to hunt them down but but tracking them to understand them better tracking them to better understand where they might dwell what are their habits where where are their typical um, uh, places um, where they where they do pursue um, prey perhaps but not to pin them down and hunt them So we were taking a walk many, many years ago in the woods, and I was explaining to her what I was really devoted to pursuing. And she's like, oh, you're tracking wonder. So it's stuck ever since then. But now I can clearly say this is exactly what you and I are talking about. Moments of wonder are subtle. They are a sort of red fox of emotions because it's sort of like a now you see them, now you don't. They're pervasive, yet they're evasive. So we do want to bring more of ourselves, more of our faculties than just our rational analytical faculties to tracking wonder. We wanna bring our imagination. We wanna bring our intuition, our somatic intelligence, these other parts of us to actually tracking these experiences.
0: Right, and in the book you write, If we want to know what tracking wonder means, we have to pay more attention to what you call the six facets of wonder. And ready, here we go. I was going to say I wonder, but uh, you probably get a lot of puns and stuff like that. It's kind of endless once you start really uh, bringing wonder into your vocabulary. But I wonder if you would introduce us briefly to the six facets, and then I have some questions about them.
1: I would love to. So I, I do think, too, um, in terms of um, for those those listeners who've had th- uh, therapy, for instance, and maybe uh, a therapist, help them define certain emotions they're experiencing. That actually helped them navigate their inner world. Just as in Buddhism, there's a lot of language about certain states of awareness to understand our inner world. What I want these six facets to do for listeners is actually give them the shared language where they're like, oh, that's what that is. So here are the six facets, and they often function in pairs. So the first pair is openness and curiosity. Openness is the wide sky facet that really cracks us open to possibility where we actually foster what I call an intelligent naivete to pursue some new possibilities. Really important. Curiosity is a more playful, proactive facet of wonder that questions and challenges the status quo of things. Questions the way things have always been done. That's why I call it the rebel facet. I'm confident Tammy has a bit of that rebel facet. So Those two facets are really important in terms of um, allowing us to approach challenges more creatively than reactively, more flexibly than rigidly. The second pair is bewilderment and hope. These are really important for our times. Bewilderment is the disorienting facet of wonder when our sense of identity or even the ideas we're pursuing get really confused. This is why I call it the deep woods facet. And this is where we don't fight or flee from confusion but actually learn to fertilize confusion. Hope is the rainbow facet. This is not wishful thinking. And I have to admit this was, Part of uh, my challenge is I really dove into the science of hope. I actually had some biases toward hope and equating it to wishful thinking. But so many people I was working with and in our community were suffering from crises and adversity. So I really dove into the science of hope to discover that it's very proactive. It does involve deliberate daydreaming and goal setting so that you can keep moving toward a better near future. The final pair, so those two facets, by the way, bewilderment and hope are essential for building resilience and fortitude without burning out. The third pair is connection and admiration. And I have to say these perhaps are also maybe the most important for our strange times in our culture, uh, divisiveness and polarity, because these are the relational facets of wonder. Connection is what I call the flock facet. It speaks to our yearning to sync up with one another, our yearning to really connect with strangers and people we've become overly familiarized with and find the support and collaboration among them. Admiration is what I call the mirror facet. So I define admiration as a surprising love for someone else's excellence in character or craft. So I'll pause there. Let you digest. Okay, very that. good. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, you know, obviously, um, there's a lot here. I think before I read tracking wonder, I associated wonder with openness and curiosity, like those two things. That's if you said to me, "What's a moment of wonder?" I would have. And to be honest with you, I did not associate wonder with the other four facets that you're identifying. So I'm more interested in going into the other four facets, if that's okay, just because I think it's will be more surprise-filled and possibly disorienting and delightful for our listeners, consequently. Okay, so let's go into this notion of bewilderment. You talked about this idea that we could fertilize confusion and that somehow that would be useful for us. And I was a little bit like, okay, first of all, I don't really like being confused. It's not something pleasant. I don't associate it with being wonder-filled. And I don't know what you mean by fertilizing. Yeah.
1: yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, great questions. And I'm glad we're delving into the less familiar um, facets of wonder. Bewilderment. Maybe this is a, a, a helpful entry point for us listeners. We go to children's literature. We well, often think that, you know, wonder is kid stuff because, oh, children are always in wonder. I think children are quite disoriented quite often. And the children's literature often reflects it. Let's think of the archetypal film version of the wizard of oz when dorothy lands she has her tornado moment which is quite mythical and lands in a whole other world of reality in oz and she has that classic statement toto i don't think we're in kansas anymore (laughs) (laughs) right or when when alice spirals down the rabbit hole and then the hookah toking caterpillar says who are you and alice is like well I don't know, I, you know I, I've been so many different people I, just since this morning. And I think, oh yeah, many of us feel that way. So, <laughs> so bewilderment, we, many of the listeners if they just think about the experiences maybe they've had in the past year and a half or two years when their sense of what was real and true got sort of turned on its head or when they thought who they were got disrupted those can be moments of bewilderment because wonder can decenter our sense of self wonder can decenter our sense of self so that ultimately we can recenter our sense of self now you're right most of us want to flee from confusion most of us are profoundly uncomfortable with confusion and uncertainty i know myself I have a high tolerance for ambiguity and confusion. And I used to think it was a character flaw. Like, why can't you just get with the program and know everything and, and, and be certain about everything? But I recognized it's actually an advantage because I work with so many people and organizations advancing their work, dealing with mounds of uncertainty and confusion, that it's actually made me a good ally to help them navigate the confusion. So fertilize. Oh, actually, let me just review four things about bewilderment that might be helpful entry points for listeners. One, rather than flee from the confusion or fight the confusion. When we fight the confusion, we just want to get a quick answer to something. Rather than that, start by feeling it. This is where we come back to that heightened state of awareness you were alluding to earlier. Actually feel the confusion. And I have... I have clients actually describe, sometimes even draw the confusion metaphorically and they use language like floating. I feel like I'm floating. There's no ground underneath me, right? Or I'm spinning. That's important just to acknowledge and bring that somatic intelligence to the experience. So then we can celebrate the confusion. And I don't mean that glibly. I mean that it could be a moment that you're on to potential transformation, whether it's personal or professional or just with the ideas you're, you're sitting with. And then we fertilize the confusion. Well, I, even before we fertilize the confusion, we, we want to do some things to, to pause seeking quick answers. So if you're confused, kind of in two categories, confused about who you're becoming, you've just lost your job, or you've quit your job, which has been quite common lately, You're not sure who you're becoming rather than seek the quick answer. Try to find activities to help you pause and live in the question of who am I becoming? That's challenging, but we can talk about how to do that. And fourth is what you were alluding to, which is fertilize the confusion. So could I give an example, please? Yeah. Okay. So I hold inner circles of about six to eight business owners, professionals, academics, they all have in common that they're wanting to advance certain ideas or kind of complex projects, but they need more visibility with those ideas. And with that comes more vulnerability. Inevitably, Tammy, one or more of them experiences their own tornado moments. Sure. Quite often, just as soon as they say, this is what I'm going to experience, there are these series of tornado moment. So in one of my inner circles once, um, somebody just like was, I, I can't give away too many details, but she was just like, okay, this is really where I'm taking my work in the world. And within a matter of weeks, um, she realized that her partnership wasn't working. Her long-term partnership uh-huh. wasn't working. I was going to have to make some decisions there. Uh, uh, realized that where she thought she was going with their business wasn't working and became really physically ill, right? All of this kind of working together. So she came for a spotlight and she's like, I just really don't know where I need to go next. So I gave her a couple of suggestions related to bewilderment. I said, don't do anything too quickly for a while. And you are sick right now. She was like in the spotlight from the sick bed. And I said, okay, here's my prescription. For 10 days, visit your sick bed at least once a day for an hour. I mean, do you remember when you were a child? Uh, when I was sick, sick day was great because it was just me and my imagination and my drawing pads and so forth. So I said to her, to fertilize your confusion here, you've got this question about who are you becoming now and who are you in relationship and where's your business going? Live those questions Bring out your color set of markers and sketch pads. She's like, right, I actually have those. I haven't pulled those out in quite some time. And I said, for once a day, for an hour, I want you to explore these series of questions that, again, they're sort of private questions for her. And she did so for 10 days. I didn't know what to expect. But in those 10 days, every day, she was drawing these elaborate sort of mind maps that ultimately gave her insight. Like deep, profound insight into where she was going in all three parts of her life, her personal identity, her relationship, and her business. Now, again, I can't give away too many details for for privacy, but I hope that gives you some sense of how it comes into play. In I'll practice. tell you the
0: the question that's coming up for me. I talk to people, uh, friends, people I'm just meeting, and they'll they'll share. Sometimes, you know, I'm going through a really big transition. It's like a dark night of the soul kind of thing, and you can tell they're going through some type of huge. Uh, to use the word you use, decentering the center that used to be the center of their life is no longer the center of their life. They're painting it in spiritual terms that it's a dark night. It's clearly in their own view as they talk about it a time of suffering. They would not say, oh, I'm in an experience of deep wonder about this transformation I'm in the middle of. People don't say that. So what it brings up for me is kind of, what is the accurate emotional valence? Like, do I just, am I going to start to just switch off to like, oh, this is is a wonder-filled time instead of like a deeply disorienting, terrible time?
1: I love that question. Thank you for this. You always ask such good questions. So let's think of, um, of the sacred geometry of overlapping circles, what we call in kind of secular terms, the Venn diagram, but it's really, Mm -hmm. uh, quite sacred overlapping circles, positive, negative, positive emotions, negative emotions, light, dark, bewilderment is right in that space in between, right? It's, and it's deliberately looks like an oval opening of a cave, a birth canal, that's where wonder resides, that's where bewilderment resides, and that's potentially where transformation resides. So to answer your question in very concrete terms, bewilderment is neither positive nor negative. You're going to experience both and neither framing, this is suffering, or this is okay and wondrous, are accurate or real. If you really feel bewilderment, it feels like floating. It feels disorienting. It feels like you're going through the woods. There's moments of excitement and there's moments of, of potential terror and deep fear. But the practice is how do you keep navigating the deep woods or let's say the choppy ocean to use a different metaphor. How do you navigate the choppy ocean when you have left behind the familiar shore of the life you had set up? And you're moving toward another shore that you don't even know where it is or what it's going to be. So how do you navigate that choppy ocean without sinking under? The metaphor of uh, the dark night of the soul is can be useful, but not if it's all framed in suffering, because that is where we will potentially be paralyzed and go under.
0: Mm-hmm. So if I hear you correctly, sometimes wonder can be a positive experience when we're feeling delight. And sometimes it's not positive or negative, it's something else, it's just an opening of discovery. Is that correct?
1: It is, and I have to say this is even, and I'd have to talk to people like Docker about this, right, in in the psychology, um, because he has studied quite in depth the physiology of certain emotions, but let's, let's think about this. When, when psychologists use positive and negative emotions, they're not actually ascribing a s- sort of moral value like good and bad. It's actually positive in part because positive emotions attract us toward the stimulus. Negative emotions repel us. Many experiences of wonder hold us in that pause of receptivity, is taking it in. And, this is where that sort of increased sacred awareness uh, um, comes into play. Like, can I be fully present and aware even in this seemingly dark moment? Does that make make sense? It does,
0: yeah. Now, Jeffrey, you do a lot of work with people in business and you're bringing in wonder interventions at the workplace. How could this pair of bewilderment and hope come together at work to help people?
1: Great question again, because so many, (laughs) the new world of work is profoundly bewildering. And what I hope for listeners who are in the workplace or leaders, executives, managers, as well as employees, that this gives them a new language, right? And hope as well. So part of the reskilling necessary with wonder interventions is to help employees and leaders and managers become more comfortable with confusion, actually openly acknowledging when they're confused. This is not equate to incompetence. So let me, let me frame it this way too. And I know you'll appreciate this because, um, I don't want to get too much into my admiration of Sounds True, but I will say what I have admired about Sounds True is doing things with integrity and sort of challenging conventional business models. Um, But I'll I'll, I'll just kind of put this in these terms and sort of like the 20th century paradigm of how to, quote, make it in the business world was you needed to be the expert or the smartest person in the, in, in the room or appear to be the smartest person in the room, <laughs> the one who knew things and knew more than others. So what I would suggest that can be advantageous is not to be incompetent, be fully competent in your field, but to increasingly know what you don't know and to increasingly acknowledge what you're confused about And can we as a team, for instance, actually fertilize some of our confusion together and bring about some collaboration to like, really, let's just open it up and get into what we really don't understand about um, employee benefits or how to engage employees, you know, uh, because this is such a common language, we're often approaching it with conventional terms. Hope. So hope is very proactive and is immediately applicable in a company setting. <clears throat> we used to, I, I think, ten-year, five-year, and three-year planning is still useful, but not as useful necessarily as it as as it used to be. What can be very helpful and hope-inducing, even for employees, is to set short-term goals to set their sights on just. Where can I get to in the next three weeks or the next six weeks and be very concrete with those goals? And then the next thing is to surround yourself with other hopeful people. So other people on the team who like share that three week or that six week goal, how do we collectively share that goal and support you and support us with that Mm -hmm. goal? That's really important. But the other sort of wondrous part in the science of hope is actively daydreaming. This is where it gets a little counter in most company culture, to actually encourage employees, encourage leaders to actively, deliberately daydream on the next possible future horizon, even if that's just six weeks or six months. So I hope some of what I've said is- Yeah,
0: actively daydream means set time aside to just see what comes up, like different than brainstorming.
1: Yeah, very much so. So this in part comes from the science of Jerome Singer. And uh, Singer shifted his own colleagues' attitudes toward daydreaming in psychology. Psychologists, not surprising, have their own set of biases. And for a long time, they were biased toward praising the um, uh, capacity to focus and concentrate for long periods of time. They saw daydreaming as kind of mind-wandering, which can be get us into... Um, negative patterns of ruminating. But Singer, he calls it constructive daydreaming. We've called it a Tracking Wonder for quite some time, deliberate daydreaming. It is when you actively set aside time to daydream. And this is what I do on a regular, almost daily basis. I go out to a spot where I actually see a horizon, a ridge of mountains, and I actively daydream about the next possible future horizon. Uh, we have clients do this. We have teams who do it. They don't necessarily go out to Her- Mountain Horizon. Okay, but
0: I but I got to ask you a question, Jeffrey, because you know I spend time and, every day yeah. now that I'm working at home, lying on the couch doing yeah. something. I don't know if I'm actively daydreaming, yeah, or if perhaps I'm doing something else like lethargically relaxing. I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it could be a fine line, right? And, and if, uh, you know, an employee, it sounds true, was just lounging on the couch and said, well, I'm just deliberately daydreaming, Tammy. <laughs> so, so deliberate means intentional. So you, you go forward with a question, right? That you want to live, so to speak, that you want to daydream. So you, you formulate the question that you're daydreaming or you formulate the goal and how will I actively, how could I actively get there? How could we as a team actively get there? And whether it's a sketch pad or something else to actually document some of the tracking of the daydreaming helps it be deliberate and not get into passive rumination, right? This is some of the negative downer patterns. I talk about in the book where we could get into negative, um, catastrophic daydreaming. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Very good. Well, let's uh, briefly talk about the last two facets that you identify, connection and admiration. Now, the place where my attention uh, really got peaked, and you'll probably know where I'm going, Jeffrey, here, under admiration as a doorway to wonder, it's easy to think of the people that we just think are fabulous and how wonder-filled that is but you actually say there can be a fine line between admiration and envy, and that we can use envy as a gateway to wonder. And that's what I wanted to hear more about.
1: Absolutely. So <clears throat> there is, um, th- there is a, a benign sort of good type of envy. And there's certainly a toxic envy, and I think we know what the toxic envy is. We go into Instagram, we think somebody's life is perfect, or we see somebody's success or ch- achievement, and we get envious, maybe jealous. We have a little Schadenfreude, which is, uh, you know, if they if we see somebody fail, we're like, oh, good, they failed, right? That's Schadenfreude. <clears throat> but there are some studies that actually show that a positive or benign envy can actually be very motivating for us ourselves to excel. So I I catch myself doing this quite often with some of my colleagues. um, And I have some of my clients actively identify certain people in their fields who perhaps are leading certain conversations or advancing certain ideas in the same field that they want to. I said, follow them, look at what they do, but then identify the that that you want to be like. So I'll I'll give you a a personal example that I think can clarify things for listeners that I give in the book as well. One of my psychologist friends who I've known since 2010, he has three daughters. I have two daughters. He is is like Captain Fantastic and he's super buff, which I'm not. And he is always showing posts of himself with his daughters, One of them's having airplane pilot lessons. Somebody else is jumping off cliffs into water, all this sort of bungee jumping. And I thought, ah, I want to be a, I want to be a father like that. Well, if I stop there, I could really get into a toxic downward spiral of envy. Like I'm not good enough, right? This is my inner piglet mind with, you know, saying I'm not good and I'm not a good enough father. That's not helpful. That's not productive. So I identify that that, well, what, I wanna be a father like that. What is that? Oh, I want to build my two daughters courage and strength and grit. So that's led to certain activities, not like my friends, but it has led me to put my daughters in challenges that suit them and that suit me. And that's the way really that watching him, it was envy, turned into admiration and help me be better at what I do as a father in my way for my two daughters. And that translates directly in the business world as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, just to ask a clarifying question here, do you think it's possible that when we find ourselves feeling something that you could say, I think that's toxic envy, I think so, you know, um, I want that person to fail, that we could just kind of step back a little bit and without too much heavy lifting, turn that into benign envy that we could work with. And then, I mean, so that we yeah. can take our toxic envy and transform it.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for asking this question. So Dr. Keltner and Jonathan Haidt also describe they, they coined the phrase Freud, It's the opposite of Freud. So when you see somebody doing well and, and like really making it or excelling in a certain way, Rather than feeling the, if you feel that toxic envy, start to pause, you pause again, right? There's the pause of wonder and you shift and you actively express good thoughts toward them. Maybe even sending them a note (laughs) of of, uh, appreciation or admiration can be a step in the right direction. Yes, I do this often and I've had my clients do it often as well. So yes, it's a beautiful example. You feel the toxic envy, you identify it, you pause, and you're like, actually, let me foster more positive emotions, appreciation for that person, like congratulations for that person. What that does is not only, it's not just like bypassing negative feelings, it's actually potentially elevating you to say, okay, what has that person done well? Like, How could that lift me up as well?
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So you mentioned that since you've been in this wonder field, immersed in the science of wonder, that you've increased your wonder ratio in general. And for the listener who's like, you know, I want to increase my wonder ratio. I want to do it. Jeffrey, can you give, let's start with just three, three wonder ratio improvement techniques that our listeners can try.
1: I love it. Yeah. So one is um, try this in the morning. Pause a few minutes, maybe with your favorite beverage and really check in and center yourself and ask yourself, what am I devoted to? What am I devoted to today? And what that does is can open you up, switches that default pattern of, I need to check my phone notifications and texts. I need to go through my to-do list. You've just opened yourself up to potentially standing in wonder with something. And it creates a beautiful new reframe for everything that you do during the day. That's the first thing.
0: Let's pause on that before we go on to the second and third for a moment. You know, what I notice is that word, Devotion, devoted. Mm. What am I devoted to? That word like just hits me in my heart immediately. Like I immediately almost start to cry. Uh, Uh, It's a really powerful word. Tell me your sense of that and why it's so powerful as a wonder gateway.
1: Thank you. Uh, So I alluded earlier in our conversation that when I look back at all the different things to which i was attracted i realize i've been on this path for a long time and in my early 20s a mentor gave me a copy of eric Fromm's uh, the art of loving it's a great um a book from like 1956 this existential psychologist and he talks about loving as a practice and he uses he says you know uh, we often are focused on falling in love but what about the practice of standing in love So that's always stayed with me, and it's in the context of devotion that I'll get to because one of the premises of Tracking Wonder, both as a company and a community and in the book, is that it's one thing to fall in love with a fantasy of an idea, of a partnership, of, oh, I'll write a book. It's another thing to stand in love and stand in wonder with a dream you're devoted to. We say that every big idea begets a series of challenges. So can you really stay devoted to that endeavor or to, to your calling what you're called to? So let me unpack devotion and why I choose. It. I'm so glad that it almost brought you to tears only because it resonates with me that way as well. The word originates in the Sanskrit vak, VAC, V-A-C. Vok. It's one of the oldest Sanskrit syllables. It, um, it means in some ways sacred utterance later the the force of Vak becomes the force of sarasvati in some of the Hindu iconography. Vak gives rise in English to voice, vocal, vocabulary, vowel, vocation, that to which we're called. So when you check in with your devotion, you really are checking in with that deep calling that depth to which you're called. And so when we, I don't know, would you, would you, um, when I ask you, Tammy, what you're devoted to, what, what comes up for you? What would you vocalize?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm devoted and it, it's, uh, so meaningful to me, um, to my wife and my family, which are my two fur children. And I'm devoted to a sounds true, uh, deeply, and to a set of values, and bringing those values into every part of my life. And I could say more about that, but it's a sort of you know deep orientation of my soul.
1: Yeah, I and I feel that, and you are you are so devoted to awakening, right yourself and, and others translates in all those different areas one of the people in my inner circle last year she took this practice to her husband they each now share their own personal devotions their couple's devotion their family devotion and her team's devotion as well
0: and the link to wonder when doing that is because when we identify what we're devoted to that's a doorway into
1: possibility devotion is wonder infused with desire and commitment
0: beautiful it keeps,
1: yeah yeah so yeah that's that's one of the key practices the second i would suggest is detect some of your default patterns and habits throughout the day we all have them you know and when you are in your work mode your to do mode and you start to notice how you're kind of shutting down my invitation to listeners is to, is to detect when you're starting to shut down, when you're getting hungry or tired. And instead of checking out on social media or your emails or your texts, step away from a screen, step outdoors for just a few minutes, look up at the sky, no matter what the weather, just for a few minutes, disrupt your default afternoon patterns in one way, right? And you may have to set a timer (laughs) to remind yourself to like, being you out of your default patterns. The third is maybe something in the evening to actually make it a practice to look back on your day and ask yourself, what were three highlights today? What were three small moments, they could be sensory moments, they could have been a moment of conversation, something someone said, and write those down. That's a wonder intervention that can be really powerful for framing your day.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to uh, ask you a question about your second wonder intervention mm, about these yeah. default patterns. Mm. So, you know, I'm curious if somebody has the experience. I often have the experience. Well, I, my default patterns are my default patterns because I find them kind of comforting they resettle me. So I, you know, lie on the couch with my iPhone, which is kind of similar maybe to someone watching television or something like that. And it just, you know, I don't want to go outside. I don't want more stimulation. I don't want more anything. I don't know if I even want more openness and wonder. I'm just kind of like, I need a couple hours just to sit here and be an internal, I don't know if exactly if I'm a grump, but I just, I know I'm closing down, but I need that time. What would you say to them? This is the story. What do you What do you Mm -hmm. think about that? Am I Mm -hmm. narrowing the wonder in my life, or am I uh, just kind of resetting myself, and that's okay? Mm.
1: Good question. Um, And I'm not sure yet. Like I would, I would spend some more time with you, like unpacking that, right? Closed states are are not bad states, right? So when we're highly focused on something and we're eliminating distractions, that's a cognitively closed state we need it's not potentially wondrous but that's okay um being in digital distraction is an open state but it's not particularly wondrous and actually i am just touching on some of this new research that a lot of the increases in depression and anxiety are coming from um, an overstimulation of dopamine dopamine is the neurotransmitter of curiosity. It is what keeps us going. But when we're just like stimulating ourselves, it's like brain candy. And then we feel sort of like we've got a sugar hangover. So if you're, let me just say for your instance, right, we all have variations. Let's say if you just like unwinding, doing nothing and doing nothing well on the sofa and just looking through your iPhone for a little bit is fine, it resets you, there's nothing wrong with that. But if it's keeping you in a state of potential debilitating distraction or over-rumination where you're stuck in a pattern of fret or regret, that's a good signal, right? A good signal to like, let me disrupt this, right? Mm -hmm. Let me detect the default. I feel what that feels like. Let me seek out something surprising and then let me extend that moment.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm curious, Jeffrey, have you worked with people who say to you, you know, I'm depressed. I'm depressed Mm -hmm. right now. And I don't know if this tracking wonder stuff is going to work because I don't really have an appetite for wonder right now because I'm depressed. And how would you work with someone who presented that emotional confession to you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. First of all, most people don't come to me with that probably because they have not been, uh, you know, drawn to wonder if you, they usually don't come to me saying I'm not attracted to, to, to wonder, but I understand what you're saying, right? Because I've worked with plenty of people, um, who, who are symptomatic of depression, um, and not, not, um, not chronic, depression, but sometimes acute depression. And uh, certainly I experienced it. uh, I experienced my version of languishing and mild depression over the past couple of years during the pandemic, as did many people for different reasons. So it does show up in that even though that's not always what presents itself to answer your question. So when it shows up, we work with it, we don't bypass what we're experiencing. We don't bypass whether it's showing up as depression or anxiety or confusion or fear or irritate. We don't bypass those emotional experiences, but we also know that we don't have to dwell in those emotions nor frame our whole reality around those emotions. So if there's an entry point, which is what I'm looking for in another person, if there's an entry point to experiment with an intervention, whether, and I would usually start with uh, in that scenario with openness and curiosity. I would actually start there before I went into say bewilderment. Um, Are you open to experimenting and testing out something for just five days, seven days, and you track the intervention and see what works and then report back the results. If they're open to that, then we've got an entry point. Then we've got a. Then we've got room to have a tracking party. So, to mm-hmm. speak. Yeah.
0: tracking party. I like that. <laughs> okay. Here's the last thing, Jeffrey, that I want to have you touch on. The subtitle of Tracking Wonder mm. is Reclaiming a Life of Meaning and Possibility in a World Obsessed with Productivity. And you know, I'd like to understand more how the current landscape of our time where, you know, people are asked to work so many hours or, you know, they feel like they're now working all the time from home, etc. how that uh, affects our wonder quotient, if you will.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate this. So I'm really taking lots of deep dives here. We're gathering lots of data from our wonder at work um, assessment and survey. What's interesting in just like looking at that multi-point survey is that people describe satisfaction in a lot of areas of wonder in that survey where they have the lowest rankings, say sometimes on average, four out of 10, um, are in the areas of depression and anxiety and in the ability to turn work off. They can't turn work off regularly. The third is at the end of the day, they feel exhausted, right? Those all all three are related. So I I frame our culture of toxic productivity in certain ways. And just looking at this culture we have inherited, and some of us have perpetuated it regardless of our situation, um, this culture really values perfectionism. No errors, no mistakes versus playful experimentation even though ironically we now know that a certain degree of playful experimentation can lead to a more productive and fulfilled and healthy workforce. Um, uh, Culture tends to value always being on. And I can cite a number of examples from even uh, just a few years ago. Uh, There was, I think, an Uber driver who she kept driving even as she was delivering her baby she was having her baby and she was sort of valorized like a really loyal
0: holy god yeah right so
1: so we see that like oh yeah you know crush it and so forth and if anything i hope the past two years has started to shift some of that narrative versus valuing let's say deliberate daydreaming as we've been exploring even though now we're learning that deliberate daydreaming can ultimately lead to better productivity, more fulfillment, healthier lives. Toxic Productivity values human beings in terms of efficiency, sort of units of labor instead of well-rounded, emotionally complex human beings. So yes, we do live in a world obsessed with this type of over productivity. And what I really hope is that this book and this body of work is an antidote to that world. Mm-hmm. And that if anything, I guess maybe the closing is that what gives me hope too, Tammy, is that um, part of my research has led me into the domains of cultural anthropologists, psychologists, evolutionary biologists who are giving us a very different narrative of our human history of what has helped us not just survive, but ultimately thrive over the millennia. And it turns out that it's not survival of the fittest, that we don't have to be cutthroat competitive and aggressive to make it in this world. They are painting a whole different picture of what has helped the species actually survive for millennia. They're actually more cooperative, generous, and yes, wondrous, which is the first of all of our emotions.
0: Yeah. That's Why do you speaking. say it's the first of all of our emotions? Why do you yeah. say that?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, and, and I'm not the only one, actually. Um, Martha Nussbaum, psychologist of emotions, uh, also attests to that. Rene Descartes, actually in 1649, in one of his first studies of five key emotions, also described it as the first of all emotions for a couple of reasons. Um, it gives rise psychologically to all of the other emotions. It is the emotion we're more than likely born with, which is why I say it's our birthright. Regardless of circumstances, we're born with a certain kind of wonder. It's not the wonder you and I now experience, but a certain kind of wide-eyed wonder. Mm -hmm. It gives rise to love, it gives rise to compassion. Were it not for wonder, we likely, psychologists surmise would not have these other emotions Mm -hmm. and a certain anthropologist like melvin connor look at even chimpanzee behavior as they stand in awe of and and wonder toward a waterfall we're looking at them to understand human behavior it's possible you know that that our ancestors some five million years ago had these early experiences that then gave rise to Um, to our ability ultimately to thrive over millennia. And that's this is what gives me hope. We have so many challenges in this world, so many challenges that these experiences of wonder aren't going to be the antidote, but they are a possible counter um, antidote to our typical um, solutions in in this world of hyperproductivity.
0: And then one final question here, Jeffrey. You write in Tracking Wonder that it's possible to gift wonder Mm. to someone. How could our listeners here at the end of our conversation take something away so that they could gift wonder to someone else?
1: I love that. So think of somebody you care about who perhaps could use a little surprising delight in Mm. their life. What's one small gesture you could do for them. What's one small thing you could do to stoke their curiosity and surprise them in a way that helps them see that you see them? That could be just as simple as sending them a handwritten note in the mail.
0: Gorgeous. (laughs) I've been talking with Jeffrey Davis. He's the founder of the Tracking Wonder Consultancy. And with Sounds True, he's written a new book. It's called Tracking Wonder. Reclaiming a life of meaning and possibility in a world obsessed with productivity. Jeffrey, thank you so much. Great, great work you're doing. You're really giving us ways to notice and bring the wonder that's here, right here, into our life and increase our wonder quotients. Thank you.
1: It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you, Tammy.
0: Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.